Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mm, 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 mm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Not to plan cold opens too much, he says before we start a cold open. Dude, but, just oh, do the sound effect we have a we'll brand we have just a brand new brand new sound effect for this episode. Uh, it comes directly from the film. Uh, do not ask how I got it. But when we break this movie wide open, it is going to be exactly like we're breaking open a big glass carafe. Uh, once dissolving our points in the film uh, and now broken wide open, you'll hear this. Sorry, I just dropped a bunch of plates. Can you play the sound effect? Oh, shit. Um, <laughs> Can you actually play the sound effect? Sorry, yeah, sorry. I just tripped and God, slipped over it was everything so in my cloud- it, was so, it was so loud. I, Here's the sound effect I will my play. My mother's when- Haviland in Limoges collection has just fallen down the stairs, which I, I did weirdly lube up. You, it sounds like ago. you threw them down and it didn't hit any steps. It just hit the landing. Flat, like, hardwood yes. landing. If uh, anyone knows what Haviland is, feel free to reach out to me. Uh, we can talk about Haviland. Yeah, great Please cold continue. open. This is the sound effect Thank I'll you. play when we break this movie wide open. Thank you so much for listening to Trilove. It's a literal roundtable podcast about movies we saw or people we met at or through the Trilon Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find us on Twitter at Trilove Podcast. You can find the Trilon at Trilon Cinema. Uh, there's recently the Cult Film Collective is now accepting applications for membership. Uh, capped at 20 right now, but I believe they're expanding. Go to cultfilmcollective.org to find out more about that. Um, but in the meantime, my name is Jason Daphnis. I help make this podcast. and You can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. When the first killing in the movie happened, Jason leaned over to me in the theater, paused, and whispered, Checkmate. I'm Cody Narvison, and you can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. Insignificant is my face. I'm Harry Mackin, and I'm just learning that I have co-hosts on this podcast? I'm listening to... I have headphones on now, and I can hear everyone's voice coming through so loud and clear. It's kind of freaking me out. Uh, You can find me on Twitter at Shiitake Harry. My name is Aaron, and I've killed my stepfather, and I've hidden his body uh, in a jar. This is not a reference to the movie. I actually did that. So um, you can find me on Twitter, at RBPlease. I didn't know your mother was married twice. Uh, and we are welcoming a guest, return guest, from our episode about the third man. Natalie Marlin is back behind the mic. Natalie, introduce yourself. Hello. Uh, I'm a freelance writer, a uh, fan of the Trilon Minnesota resident uh, film person of all trades. And you can find me on Twitter at Natalie's not in it. And uh, I have to say uh, my marriage to this podcast was temporary for one night. Why don't you just die? (laughs) Already a natural. Oh my good God. Uh, This podcast, uh, as I said, is going to be punctuated with a bunch of sound effects. Uh, Get ready for that. But I might need again, one of you group to prompt me. If you think we've really made this podcast explode with a certain point, we do that sometimes. I feel like real jazzed about a point. I might just make the sound effect. Don't be surprised. Uh, but I'll actually let Aaron do the intro of what this movie is. Uh, give us some background, Aaron. Now that you've sort of put the sword of Damocles that is your soundboard over our heads, just waiting for it yes. to happen so that we're not you, in the moment. When you're, yeah. when you're perfectly on a roll, it's just going to fuck you up. It's like me really throwing good. a I wheel love that. in your spokes. 
wheeling your spoke. I, I think it's actually the opposite where I'm going to make what I view as a very well-considered thoughtful point, and I'm not going to hear the, the shattering sound effect and jump out the window behind. Like, I don't know. I'm just here, we'll quit the it. podcast entirely. Did you hear that? Oh, thank you. You did. Yes, hear we it. are talking. We are talking about Chess of the Wind, 1976 film, otherwise known as the Chess Game of the Wind. It is an Iranian film directed by Mohammad Reza Aslani. Uh, it was screened, uh, I believe, exactly once uh, in 76 before being banned. The film was thought to be lost for about 40 years uh, when in uh, actually kind of conflicting reports on this, either 2014 or 2015, I believe 2015, uh, the negatives of the film were found in an antique shop in Iran, uh, and Islani was able to ship the film negatives elsewhere, uh, and the film was shown again uh, in 2020 and has seen a kind of wider distribution since then after being restored, uh, in part due to preservation work done by the World Cinema Project, distribution by Janus Films, all of these kind of different groups. Um, but yes, the film has is, is kind of seen this this big resurgence after being lost for, for decades and decades. Uh, the film itself concerns a power struggle, uh, at the center of which is Lady uh, Agdas, uh, played here by Fakri Korvash. Uh, she's a disabled woman confined to a wheelchair uh, who has recently received a large inheritance from her deceased mother. Uh, attending to her is her servant and maid, played by Shore uh, Dashlu, uh, and also important uh, is uh, Lady Agdas's uh, stepfather, played by uh, Muhammad Ali uh, Keshavars, uh, who is very disrespectful toward her uh, in her period of mourning, uh, and who openly uh, plots to take control of her house and her inheritance. Uh, now, Natalie, you've been, at least for the past, like, I don't know, two, two three days here, uh, kind of raving about this film. You, you, you had, I believe, reached out and said, like, hey, I want to chat about this film. But you've also, uh, just from Letterbox and things you've said about it, like, you've really, like, fallen in love with this film. So I guess just passing it off to you, like, um, seeing this, like, this great film, but also this, like, intriguing artifact. Like, what are your kind of thoughts after a viewing or two of this? Yeah, so this is one that I was uh, very much anticipating for from the second that the the kind of miraculous restoration that you've been referring to was announced. I had, uh, like a number of other people, seen how drastic and uh, how, how much the restoration really kind of un- unveiled about like what the detail work in this film was considering the only remnants of it that existed before were these censored VHS tapes where details were very murky. They were very hard to make out. So from the second it was announced uh, just from seeing the visual look of the film and hearing the general plot of it, uh, it, it had been on my radar for some time, just as somebody who is fascinated by films like this that get lost and then rediscovered. And I had been, anticipating it for a long time unsure of when it was going to even make its way to me because i knew due to the world cinema project restoration that it was going to be released eventually but this literal second that i saw that trilon was screening the trailer of this i'm pretty sure i dm'd the uh podcast account and was like i need to be on this episode <laughs> you were you um, so were almost I, you were almost pitted in a fist fight against one of the trilon volunteers who was like I would fight somebody to talk about that movie on the podcast. And I said, somebody's already got it, but I will, I will put up the, 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 I will put up the gates and you guys can just go at it. They, we they, will drop they location. Kowtowed. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, let's, let's, let's fight about it. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, the, the, 
I I had mostly been anticipating it just purely from an aesthetic point of view of um just wanting to see what the this film was all about that had been uh locked away for so long thought to be lost and I feel like when I had um eventually seen it this weekend uh kind of part of it I think what took me about it is um because I've been doing a lot of research about uh, the director and kind of the entire political context that this film exists in and kind of was shuttered away from. Uh, I I feel like the second I came out of it uh, because of its ending, which I'm sure we will get into and might want to like hold off on until uh, we're like kind of later in, uh, I knew immediately from that that I like needed a second viewing to digest everything. And so I went back to it again yesterday in preparation for all of this. And I think part of what strikes me a lot about this is that it is so densely loaded with uh, political meaning in every moment of it, from the character relations to what it's saying about the sociopolitical conditions of the people surrounding these characters or like the sort of bubble that they find themselves in of ignorance. Um, and essentially kind of what I feel is especially fascinating that we could get into is how the restoration itself ends up feeding into the thematic ideas of the film and how the restoration itself is a sort of political action in its own way. I love that you went there because I think the restoration and the fact that like that this is, I think maybe Aaron undersold it a little bit. This is like full on, like it was considered lost media in a lot of ways because there was just one shitty VHS like scan that was going around for 40 years. And I think I'm, Actually, the one of the intro cards says that in 2015, the negatives were found in an antique shop in Tehran and were just I returned to the director. Just like an absolute miracle you, scenario. Sorry? I said this in the Did I you? said antique I, shop in the intro. Sir, I, how, I, how, you don't come at me on this podcast just because you have a glass. Also, uh, in, in the movie, it said that his children, the director's children, found it. Um, I don't – that seems yes. apocryphal to me, but – like that's what the movie says. I, just the, just the odds that they would be in an antique shop and they would be like, "Hey, it's Dad's movie." You know what I mean? It, but I don't know. It does. It does feel like there's maybe not to like a like degree of abstraction. The, like, yeah. The, the like story behind this is obviously like, look, the film, the film, like very clearly, I think stands up as a film by itself. But also, like the story of this is like so miraculous. But it does feel like there's some sort of detail there around like somebody from the film shop reached out or they like new film shops to, I, I don't want to like poo poo it too much, but like just taken on its face that is like a kind of absurd story and like kind of, yeah. absurd way, I guess, but I hope that it is just like, they just like tripped over like a box. Right. Legends you know, say that like, Martin Scorsese himself was walking the streets of Tehran and he happened into this antique shop. Listen, my man, my man just is digging in the carts. Uh, every weekend he's out there at the thrift shops, just looking for the next big hit. Uh, but no, I, I think that that is like, it's one of my favorite parts of thinking about this movie is the fact that like, I think I made a tweet to this effect from the trial of account is like, like, it feels almost as if I shouldn't be seeing it in some ways. And that's not like, oh, it's cursed. Like, uh, like, like, you know, a nineties film, nineties horror movie or something like that. It's like, literally, I don't think like Dude, geopolitically like- that I should have been seeing this at any time, let alone, you know, almost 50 years after it first came out. It feels like not, it feels like like a miracle nonsense to me just to be watching it. 
But it also does feel like Iranian J found footage horror movies. <laughs> it, it's like the the equivalent of like like found footage. But it, if what if it was in Iran and it was about ghosts? It, it, <laughs> it, it feels it feels far more like I don't know, far less cursed than that. It feels far more like by the end of the movie, far more. I don't want to say like uh, plain, but like more mainstream, less less experimental in a lot of ways. To me, anyway, I think that it is like very conventionally. Uh, like told story in a lot of ways until like some really cool stuff toward the end in the climax. Personally, I, I this is you know, like a positive sentiment that I'm trying to make about it. But uh, and Natalie, I do want to get about your point uh, about like like synesthetically how those things marry, how the restoration and sort of the political messaging uh, are actually in line with one another about this movie. I I've I've been kind of like sitting on this uh so 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 to give i think i think it's important at this stage to give kind of more of the political context in this movie where um essentially uh when it was initially screened it was uh screened under um the reign of an iranian shah that uh was then uh overthrown as part of the 1979 revolution and kind of after that happened there was this sort of power grab that was happening there uh where eventually kind of uh, the the ruling party that eventually took over kind of oppressed a lot of um a lot of uh shall we say more marginalized uh demographics of people uh there was a lot of sort of uh restriction of and punishment and kind of government uh violence against say uh women or queer people um that kind of resulted from that um and i feel like that's an important context because the film being banned that same year is very intensely tied into that and is part of why like a sort of artistic expression that is in a lot of ways critical of those kinds of uh those kinds of power figures it, it makes sense that something like this would be locked away for so long under those kinds of circumstances. And I think part of what the restoration itself is doing is uh, the, the fact that that kind of a lost uh, suppressed artistic artifact is being brought back is itself kind of an act of political rebellion against those sorts of oppressive systems. It becomes a way where it allows for expression of political criticism that otherwise wouldn't have been publicly available. And um, one of the key things that I think stands out to me rewatching this, uh, the restoration is very gorgeous to look at. It is the, you can tell just how lush and detailed all the sets are in pretty much every shot of the film. But I feel like it also helps get to a lot of the core, very ornate, lavish details that are very extravagant in the set, which also illustrate just how much the film is at its core about wealthy people vying for this power struggle that exists only within the walls of this manor. Uh, I'm thinking particularly about the hanging goldfish bowl that's just kind of suspended from the ceiling, um, which is, it feels very much like a, this is what like a rich person would have in their house sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, but I do want to trade it off to Harry, uh, who I think has something sure. to go off. Yeah, of no, this. I just, um, I think the, I'm thinking about a lot of things now, but like specifically the fact that this came out in 1979 and it is so critical of the possibility specifically of regime change and specifically of regime change within a fixed economic system. Uh, it feels like it's it's incredible to me that this could have come out 
like contemporaneously with the revolution, right? Because there is an entire subplot and we don't even have to get into the ending and the cycles that are sort of implied by it. Um, but there's an entire subplot where the two uh, step sons of the, uh, the stepfather, um, they're sort of vying for influence and they have these sort of twin ideas about economic development, about how they're going to enhance this fallen house again. And it becomes like starkly apparent that although they are thinking about industrialization, they are thinking about modernization, they are thinking of it very much in the same context as Shaw's, right? It's like at one point, one of them even says like, well, when you make enough factories and get enough people working for you, you'll be like a king. And it's just like, there is no like conscious sort of like radicalism to this. It's just, they want to replace one sort of like cyclical regime about landed gentry who are exploiting working populations with another. And that is sort of like all that is happening within the context of this house, right? This sort of like endless struggle that's going to end up in the same place. And, um, you know, you can see why it was banned by a new regime who is sort of interested in doing those things and maybe just replacing the people who are wealthy with other people who could be wealthy, right? It, but it's it's really startling that like there are so many different contexts here where it's like there is a queer relationship at the heart of this movie. There is the queer a queer woman is like arguably the main character, right? And uh, and it's that critical of like the different figures who come to wield power and influence within. Uh, the changing of the guard times of fallen empire and what that may actually result in, um, which may, makes it like politically prescient in a, in a way for 1979 Iran that like I've very rarely seen in a movie. Yeah. I, and I, I think it's important to note, note like or at least one of the strongest things I picked up on was I, and I think I tracked the names correctly. Haji Amu is the name of the guy who actually like is trying to usurp the fortune. He's the one who gets murdered. Stepfather. Uh, yeah, yeah. Stepfather. Um, yep. and, uh, I think Atabak must've been his wife's name, like the paraplegic's mother, I think. I believe well, that's the wife, father. Wait. Yeah. Is oh, it, okay. It? Okay. Yeah. Agdas is the, the main character. Agdas's mother then. Do we have her name? Anyway, I just want to try and make sure that I'm separating characters. And, uh, and I believe but you are correct. Yes. Letterbox is incredibly unhelpful in this. It just has the actors and actresses' names, unfortunately, for this movie that was screened once 45 years ago. Um, but I think it's important to note that he, the stepfather, uh, is like classically usurping the fortune to like just sort of gold hoarder type ends. I think like it's never said he wants to pursue certain like uh, business opportunities. It's not said that he wants to like get into or out of, um, I think the family's business was goldsmithing. Uh, and like that, that's not ever made super clear. He's just sort well, of like in, in there fact, as, as a malignant debt, force, right? right? Like he's, he's, he's so just, it's even more predatory than that. Even exactly. He's, he's there to like, I guess, enrich himself. Whereas, the brothers, his sons, I think we've established, um, they like the suitor and his brother, they're looking to like expand beyond that. Like Harry was saying, they're, they're talking about factory work. They're talking about like trading. They have competing ideas of how, but it's like, they're not like tied to those trappings of acquiring, uh, you know, wealth or, or like, you know, just showmanship. They're looking to generate capital out of this. They're like, modern they're hilariously the nouveau riche right like yeah. very much so <laughs> i just i just found that a really funny like line that's drawn in the sand between the generations after uh the father is quote-unquote dead then it's like the family needs to decide what to do with the money 
and the best ideas they have are let's generate capital. Let's like play into the uh, like uh, most Western ideal of capital that we can and move that for like move with society that way. If, if, if I will be allowed a little bit of time traveling, I think that this film no. is like, cr- well, fair. Uh, I think this film is kind of, it, it, it is of course very critical of the Shah's regime, which was, uh, uh, from about like the, the mid forties to the late seventies, it was very much like a U.S. backed, like more kind of scare quotes, like democratic, uh, regime that like very much served, uh, kind of Western, uh, powers, uh, specifically the United States at, at kind of, and the, the rhetoric was like advancing certain human rights causes. Right. Um, the film being set, I believe in the 1920s, right. Is like very critical, uh, of the generation that will come after it, right, which is like the regime of the Shah and like the the, the themes around like modernization and like the idea of like this kind of uh, uh, growing economy that needs to adapt in some way and kind of uh, loosen its ties to these kind of historical trends in order to kind of, uh, you know, compete in this kind of larger global mm-hmm. economy, I think is very prescient. But the, the film in the ways that is transgressive is also kind of in, in effect critical of the regime that would come after the Shah with Khomeini mm-hmm. uh, in, right, in exactly. 79. Um, and it kind of like, it, it's, it is like very impressive in a very weird way that it, it can be read and, and, and depending on the lens you're choosing to view this film through can be read as critical of multiple generations of uh, Iranian politics. It, yeah, exactly. Culture. It's like, it feels like a movie that came out in 1989, right? Like 10 years into the new regime. That would make yeah. more sense for what this movie is saying than it coming out the year that that regime is established. Yeah, I do have uh, sort of a, a theory on why that is. And like uh, what a second viewing kind of helped me pick up on is so, something that we've been circling around a lot here, which is that I feel like this remains prescient and relevant because in a lot of ways, the the core uh thing that it's picking up on is this idea that uh power lust or vying over the sort of control of this kind of large rule uh is in its own way a corruptive force uh just being able to chart a second time kind of the motives of everybody involved here everybody in their own way is kind of vying for that kind of control and power and influence and wealth in their own kinds of ways. Most of them are people who are also coming from within the family itself. They're people who are uh, already coming from a state of kind of privilege and luxury uh, who are just essentially trying to expand out and gain that influence. Really the one exception to it is Sharagla Dushu's character who is uh servant uh to the lady who is um essentially her arc is one where it's uh without kind of giving anything away it becomes something that is in its own way the sort of promise of upward mobility this kind of illusion that like she can get this position of power is its own way a corruptive force and is something that kind of ends up becoming its own kind of undoing um and I think that ties in neatly to one of the other things that we've been talking about, which is kind of uh, the the outlook that the characters have toward uh, the the sort of lower class is something that 
is just very striking. It becomes an undercurrent of kind of understanding what everybody's ideology is and figuring out kind of, it, it becomes this very illuminating force into getting perspective on kind of how little these, these people look down upon uh, the people who are less fortunate than them and how little anything that's not that, that, how little anything that doesn't have to do with the inheritance matters to them. And uh, one of the, the key sort of recurring uh, features of the film that I think is really um, important to this is there is a recurring uh, sort of like interstitial that the film puts in between sequences where it's uh, outdoors, like right outside the manor's walls. It's uh, the servant women of the house are washing clothes and kind of conversing with each other. And that's really for most of the film, the only sort of peak we get into these bigger issues that are happening right outside uh, from the larger kind of uh, oppressive power of the government where there are talks about essentially uh young boys getting conscripted into war or uh certain people getting tortured because they have political information that uh they're they're being dissidents about it's there's a number of these things that kind of come to the surface that are much clearly bigger concerns that no one within the house actually seems to care about other than viewing these people as means to exploit in order to get wealth yeah, I, I think that the 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 film, you know, being a film from '76, I think there was probably quite a lot of, uh, you know, there was a feeling in Iran that it was kind of the end of something, right? As as the shot kind of was, was losing um, kind of favorability with specifically the United States mm-hmm. due to, I mean, a lot of policies policies like surrounding oil and whatnot. Like this, this is a film about like the end of an era and people trying to capitalize on that, that ending, right. And trying to kind of set themselves up in the best position as, as kind of the future moves on. And I think that is what the, the, the scenes of, you know, the servants and the maids washing clothes and sheets and rugs and towels and whatnot um, outside. Those are like easily my, my favorite scenes in the film with, with the exception of maybe like kind of the big climax at the end, which is like really spectacular. Uh, but those films are like, they're kind of like act breaks, right? Like they do kind of, they serve to remind the audience that like that this film is like very much like a stage play in a way and how it is contained to this one location. And these things kind of, the tensions kind of boil up over time, but it's like, it's like this weird breath of fresh air every time that we are kind of taken outside just for even a minute or two. And it's like a reminder that like, as these, as, as these maids talk about, as Natalie said, like, you know, people being tortured, uh, you know, uh, maybe someone in a a position of power, like uh, kind of taking advantage of like the kids around him, like all these like very disgusting and disturbing conversations are just like, they serve to show you that like, Oh, these people that are, that are normally silent, uh, they're not given much of a voice in society. Like they do know what's going on and they do talk amongst themselves. And like, they are also in their own way, kind of planning, uh, uh, you know, kind of a future. And they are also seeing the end of this era that will, you know, come about in a few years. And it's like, those scenes are every single time I was like, just like it, and the, the, the coloration of the shot is completely different. The composition, it's like this very symmetrical, it's, it's really just like, like somebody snapped and it's like completely different from uh, the scenes before it's, it's excellent every time it happens, I think. Yeah. I'm inclined to agree with that. And the more, I don't know, the more I hear y'all talk about this movie, um, especially those last points from, from Natalie and Aaron, the more like it's, it's obvious that so much of this 
intentionally and unintentionally like everything is so interwoven together like it's really hard to pull apart and Oh, it just started raining as I started talking, which is brilliant timing. Um, so thank you, nature. But um, even just like this from a starting point of like this movie as suppressed art, its eventual emergence accidentally plays super well into like the narrative and thematic elements um, and the visual elements of this movie as well, um, which I, I think we've gestured at a little bit. But like the this movie and I guess, you know, I'm, I'm a sleepy boy. Part of this was tied into me waiting for a caffeine pill to kick in, but like the, the, uh, interior shots of this movie, like everything is very decorated and extremely well shot, but it's, it's not, um, dynamic necessarily. The there's very little dynamic movement until we go outside to those like act breaks. Um, there's a lot of character movement and a lot of camera movement. And when you're inside, you know, retroactively, it's easy for me to be like, Oh, the, because of the the oppression because of like the patriarchal influence because of this presence like people aren't able to move in the way that they so choose with you know with uh, like under their roof within their walls and like the camera cannot move um in that you know in, in that same way oh boy um sorry i dropped i dropped my urn that i, w- I always cradle when i'm on the pod um you have a glass urn mic. that seems like a particularly oh, cool urn. it's it's my it's my like eighth least or you know eighth most favorite dead relative so i i got i got a few to spare <laughs> so but, you um, put them in there for everybody to literally see their burnt flesh for the rest yeah, of time my lucky urn i'll find an i'll find a new lucky urn um in any case well after after that um that kill that death takes place and the scene with um oh god the um the the um uh, new major you know the inheritor of the um you know the the heir and the maid they're having that scene together they're um what the wheelchair is getting walked across the room and they're eventually sort of like dancing and and together you know on the chair it's getting awkwardly scooted across the floor that's what like things really open up visually there like that there's light in this house for the first time in what feels like like centuries um and like the camera's cutting around the room we're we're seeing the room through like a, a thin uh like a space where you know where like the entrance to the room you're you're seeing and i don't just like it feels so dynamically different and as the movie ramps up and like space opens up and characters are more freely moving L- literally um a, a, a you know a, a paralyzed uh you know our paralyzed main character go uh, scales the entire complex the entire estate top to bottom and then uh all of that sort of feels to me like it, it leads up to the biggest opening of all, you know, that, that final shot where it opens up to the, you know, the, the factories and apartment buildings and, and commerce, the, the, you know, we, we, we were so focused in on this one data point and like, (laughs) this is, Hey, all of these sort of um, things that we've been building up to visually, thematically, narratively, otherwise, like this is what it all amounts to look at, look at what we all have, have created. And so it was, it was all that is to say when, when things started to open up visually, at least like within the interiors, that's, that was my moment of like, I know I'm going to need to rewatch this movie, um, pull a Natalie and like digest everything again. Um, and, and I welcome the opportunity to do so because the, like the text and subtext is so rich. Yes, I, I thank you for bringing up a number of these points because there's there's so much to go off on on that. Uh, one of the things I wanted to single out before we veer too far away from the the talk of the um, women washing clothes is uh, what something that like especially stood out to me is in that uh, sequence that you're talking about the one 
after uh, they've killed Hajiamu and it's uh, Lady Agdas and her maid kind of in that spacious room, there's this really just moving, gorgeous monologue that uh, she goes on about a dream that she had in which she's essentially like blamed for a murder and uh, confined into this uh, prison that's filling up with dust. Um, And it's in the moment watching it for the first time that like very intensely struck me. But um, I think something that makes it even more powerful is watching it a second time. I caught up on the fact that not that long after that, there is the, the last sort of interstitial with those women washing clothes is interrupted by a dust storm that comes in and it becomes this kind of multifaceted thing where um that entire monologue juxtaposed with the actual reality of the people who have to say contend with the actual uh lack of shelter against such weather conditions becomes its own sort of dividing point between the two where uh before that the way that lady agnes talks about it is essentially kind of disdain for how it is like tarnishing the physical belongings of the house uh kind of how it is sort of getting in the way of the the sort of markers of wealth whereas there's not really any concern for how it might say affect people who might not have the the sort of uh privilege or wealth to Mm. be concerned with such things that are more concerned with just the act of surviving um which i think it's in its own way uh one of the things that i would love to talk about is kind of uh lady agnes's character characterization herself is i feel like a really tricky balancing act that this movie pulls off where she is far and away probably the most complex and sympathetic character that the movie creates in terms of her her plight and like what she's kind of fighting against but the film never really forgets the fact that she is coming from this place of uh being in a position where she can inherit all this and is kind of still at a remove from the actual sort of people's issues that matter which i think is i i think that that's especially uh powerful and it it is extremely hard to pull off and it's in in turn based on how strong that performance is and how Mm -hmm. much we're with her the entire way but i feel like that's also where that that final shot really kind of uh recontextualizes things because it forces you to reconsider the fact that yes all of this is happening and you've been very invested in the the ongoing situation of this because it is a very thrilling movie at the end of the day especially where it ramps up in the climax but it is ultimately its own contained thing that is not taking into consideration pretty much the entire economic realities of all of the working class people that surround them mm-hmm. these these people who exist just beyond the building that are essentially considered to be unimportant from this perspective i absolutely love that because when i was watching that dust scene i sort of figured it was i mean small brain i I sort of read a lady Macbeth thing into it out damned spot and all that where it's like she is now racked with guilt she is now like sort of aligned with her handmaid she needs to reach out for so and i'm sure like like personally functionally it got there with the plot but what i'm hearing from you is like the way that she's talking about that and the parallels it draws with the people in the courtyard with those that, you know, consistent uh, framing we keep getting that just keeps getting more and more apocalyptic. Like there's a fire burning at some point. Like you said, there's a dust drum that rolls through. Let me throw this at you, Natalie. Is that like, is what you're saying that the dust she's talking about, the fact that it's now spread across all the house and all the patrons and everything, everybody, is that like, a, is that 
symbolic of like an equalization of of like a symbol of her fear of those walls between her and and the commoner and the laborer laborer so to speak another class of people sort of breaking down that that remove coming away i think that that's that's a possible way to to see it i was reading it more as kind of uh the the fact that the concerns about the dust are different from either perspective but i think that Mm. that that ties into itself this own uh, a sort of role that the movie itself is playing in in the sense that right when that apocalyptic force that you're talking about rolls in is kind of when basically the entire house and all the players that are involved kind of crumble in their own ways in this in this gamut that they're at. Mm-hmm. And I think that also ties into um, uh, one of uh, something that like really stood out to me watching this again is uh, the the very first shot of the film, which is this close up on one of the essentially a smaller version of these jars that becomes significant in this uh, later plot to hide this body that they're trying to uh, dispose of. Um, But uh, as the credits roll, it's just a static shot of this jar as the score is droning on. And it's right at the end of the credits, you have Lady Agda smashing it with her flail that she was taught to use. Yes, thank you. Exactly like that. Um, But it, it becomes in its own kind of way, more than just foreshadowing its own kind of uh, conscriptive uh, idea of the ways in which the the director is sort of positioning to the viewer, the, the sort of things that need to be done in order to rectify these kinds of situations. It's people in power are going to keep themselves sheltered and hidden and, Mm -hmm. The, the the plights of the people don't matter to them. They don't consider them. They don't concern themselves with them. And the only way to really sort of work, like instill any sort of change is to forcibly break that from the outside. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and what I really loved about the dust and, and I'm really glad we're talking about it now is that, um, and especially if you read the ending in the sort of symbolic way that I do, which is that they're sort of conflating the, the like languidness or the endless sort of repetition of these cycles of power being sort of locked within certain spheres of affluence and influence as sort of eternal. Um, to me, her dust speech was like literally like like her almost like partial acknowledgement that this is basically starts no exit where like they're going, they have constructed their own hell and they're going to live in it. But then they go so much further with it because we do get the dust sequence. Right. And that's like, Hey, guess what? Like, and that's, that is really emblematic of what they do with her character in the balancing act that um, Natalie, you referred to because they are actually genuinely sympathetic for her as a character, in my opinion, at many points through this movie, but her version of hell is definitely just being locked in this struggle forever, right? And never really feeling any relief or never really getting what she wants. Whereas everybody else is outside, right? Like they're being swept away by the dust storm and it's terrible for them and they're dying. Whereas for her, the thing that happens to her is the dust pours into the house and she has to be caught in it forever, Right. And so like, it's like no exit if like everybody in no exit was in charge of the livelihood of like a small nation of people. Right. And it's like, hey, it turns out that that really does change the way that we think about these people, even if we're sympathetic toward them. Um, So, I, yeah, I really love the way that like 
that dust, like so many of the sort of discrete elements of this movie, right? Like the gun, the flail, the um, the urns that she ends up breaking in her paranoia that were representative of at one time of her livelihood. Um, all of these things, they take on sort of a twin meaning as they pertain to the people within the house and the people outside the house. And um, that's that's without even getting into the, the formal qualities of this movie and how it keeps us trapped in the house that I would really love to talk about. Um, yeah. Because I think that that was maybe the most stark thing for me for the movie um, is just like how, what a formal and like, um, like technical masterpiece it is at doing what it's trying to set out to do. Yeah, Aaron has had his hand up since just after I put mine up, but I did want to move to the formal thing. Was there any other point you wanted to make before we move there, Aaron? Uh, just, just that kind of, uh, you know, t- tapping into what Natalie said about these, the, the symbol of these jars breaking. I think that it is the end of this film feels uh, kind of simultaneously optimistic and pessimistic, maybe kind of in different ways. And that it is, it is hard to read the final final shot of this film that this kind of view of not just factories but these buildings that are kind of representative of a society that had you know kind of, or had started to modernize and industrialize in this manner it is hard not to view that as like pessimistic in some way uh but the specific shot uh of the maid uh leaving through the gate and like just this 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 kind of world or you know this this street this alleyway of like this this color kind of uh, seemingly dust free as I read it, um, kind of as she walks off into that, I view that as like weirdly kind of optimistic, right? And that this this um, this symbol of you know th- those breaking jars uh, that something that was kind of like violent earlier on in the film is now like a breath of fresh air, right? It is it is not just this this you know kind of outside world. Uh, uh, being opened up into, but it is also the outside world kind of rushing in as this kind of gap is created, hmm. right? Um, and so it, it, it like, I have a hard time saying this film is like ultimately pessimistic or optimistic. It is kind of both in different weird ways, I guess. I don't know whether that was like a maybe a, an odd way of interpreting that ending, but um, well, yeah, I, I mean, don't know. It's, I think it's optimistic for the only person who actually manages to get out of the house. Uh, but like I, I, the I only mean, that person, is, I guess. That, well, no, I mean, yes, uh, but I think that person is, is you know, representative. Yes, well, that's what I mean. It's like of... the, the ones who can escape that cycle that the rest of the house, the rest of the main characters are are in, that hell. Uh, like that, yeah, she can have a somewhat happy, I mean, maybe not happy, but a better ending than the rest of them who died, you know, pissing themselves in a bathroom. Um, <laughs> but we are getting very close to like that formal conversation about like there's so much to say about the house itself I guess I call it a house, but it's more like a mansion compound um, in the middle of probably Tehran. I'm not exactly sure where this was shot, Uh, but and how it like the actual space Cody touched on how it like reflects a lot of their ability to get around their like (laughs) personally. I love that um, Lady Agdes is literally stuck upstairs almost all the time. And the one time she manages to make it downstairs, it's literally to hell and her death to shoot her former husband and to die like uh, being, I forget exactly how she dies. Does she also die by gunshot? I think it's no, a shock. Yeah, she has like a yeah. like a movie heart attack. What other movies? She's also something like that. Yeah, yeah. She's also very at that point very frail and basically in in a state of dying to the point where her her maid is being sent off to essentially perform a vow for her cure. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, well, I do like now that we've opened the doors to that conversation about like the space, the house, the formal qualities of the movie and how they change over the movie. Uh, Harry, do you want to, you sound like you had something to say about, uh, Natalie had her hand up before I did. Oh, I didn't even know. Oh, that's okay. I'll I'll keep it so that we can kind of roll right into what you're no, no, what you're just saying. Say what you got, you're killing it. All right. Um. So I I think one of the things that that struck me, especially kind of going back to it with more of an eye on the sort of formalistic stuff it's doing and how it kind of uh, alludes to where it's all going, is that uh, for most of the the runtime, especially kind of early on, the film kind of has two different uh, techniques in terms of how it is presenting its scenes. There's the the very steady long takes where it's just letting your eyes absorb this kind of uh, whoever is in a space as you're taking in like kind of whatever very, very uh, like multi-layered, like complex details are going into the sets, which feeds into the the idea of the opulence that we've been talking about. But there's also, I feel like part of what adds to the um, feeling of being confined is there are a number of uh, kind of scene transitions early on that feel especially jarring. They'll kind of like cut on uh, sort of an insert of like something being exchanged through hands or like somebody kind of holding a prop and then like all of a sudden will be like, taken some period of time before into a different room of the house without any real like warning which creates its own sort of like kind of hazy dream logic of like what's going on in the house kind of how things are proceeding it's it like elides over so much intentionally in those early passages that it feels very much like it's absorbing you into kind of what being in the situation and confined in the space and only concerned with these power dealings is doing particularly what you had said earlier about how little anything outside of the house exists to these characters right and and these people um that's there is no suggestion right up until i think the last shot of the movie that the outside sky exists right like i would say even the greek chorus when you're outside they do this thing with the camera where as the characters are talking there's this really slow zoom like the house is sucking you back into it um, it's like really, it's like a it very like Faulknerian or like a like a House of Leaves. This this mansion is because like you can feel like the physical like miasma that it exerts on these people. I I felt it particularly in the acting. This is like a very languid movie, especially starting out. The joke I made at the time is like it was like watching an Iranian soap opera at like point two five speed. Where like there are scenes that are so long and the characters are moving so slowly and it it really it's like it's like they they are like being physically oppressed by like some sort of like spiritual malpresence in the home and that is really like reinforced by these still shots right these angles like the opulence but also the like the darkness and the sort of like sinister like sickness that pervades over the the home right like it's um i think esther (laughs) esther rosenfeld's review was that uh it's it's wild that you can make a movie that's just rugs (laughs) and like she she's not wrong right it's like that's really like how it feels is like everything is hanging everything is sort of like there's this this twilight that's pervading this home and and like it it has this sort of like very oppressive effect on not only space and not only the characters but also time and even um one of the big striking things about uh the restoration is that 
um, per the instructions, I don't know if it was of the director or if it was just something that, that was a part of the original film that they had to be careful to reconstruct, was that they created this orange light that's supposed to pervade over, I think it was eight of the nine reels, um, that was very like like pointedly meant to recreate what silent films look like, right? So like the really old stuff. And you you like put that together with this almost deeply experimental acting form where these people are very, very expressive in their movements, but these movements are very slow and elaborate and sort of like over gesticulated. And it becomes something where it's like, this really felt to me like a haunted house movie or something, right? Where it's like, we are watching people be sort of like twisted by this sort of like malevolent force. And obviously the malevolent force is symbolic of their greed and of their need for um, traditional sort of like signifiers of wealth and status, whether that be capital, like you said, Jason, or whether it be like literal sort of um, authority, old wealth. And I think that all of that culminates so well in what feels like, I don't know if it's literally supposed to be, but it feels like time travel at the end, right? It's like this very Kiarostami final shot where all of a sudden we're in like 1979 Iran looking around and it's so. like, yeah, no, I mean, yeah, I read it I, that I think, way, right? Yes, very it's much, like yeah. li- literally like, oh, these, these people are like fucking like symbolic ghosts that are playing this out in this home. Meanwhile, like we're just out here, you know, it's like, and I think that that's, therein lies the optimism, right? Is this idea that like, hey, if we can get past this need for these things, for these signifiers, we can just leave them there. <laughs> like maybe, maybe it's possible to like leave this mansion, right? But like, the 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 reason it's not so optimistic is because it's also a warning right it's like listen like that mansion is still in the heart of tehran right like if you if you want it like it's still there and it is still very much having its effect on you um and so it it really is like this very spooky like i think we talked with uh kelly about somebody watched it for like a halloween watch and it's like it kind of that's a great idea honestly because it's a pretty spooky movie yeah, in its own way, it's a, it's its own kind of ghost story in a lot of ways, uh, as, as the characters essentially uh, say as much at one point when they, they're wondering what these mysterious appearances from Hajiyamu outside of his quote-unquote death uh, are all about. Um, but um, uh, yeah, no, the, the, the sort of what you're talking about with the, the late reels in, in the climax that uh, in the note at the beginning about the restoration, uh, they single out the fact that um, reels, I believe, nine and ten of the, the negatives had to be treated with this sort of uh, orange hued effect that is harkening back to the silent era. And I feel like that is especially striking because, as we've mentioned, the lighting in so much of the rest of the movie is so intentionally dim. It is creating this effect where the shadows that are kind of shrouding everything else create their own sort of character or effect on what the rest of what what the the sort of struggles that these characters are involved in is kind of doing in terms of casting a pall over this house and those that that last uh big climactic sequence uh where it's uh lady agnes uh hears basically this almost kind of like inhumanly hearing this laughter that is coming way from like the lower level of the house in the bathhouse and is chasing it down the steps as she's pulling herself along and almost kind of literally dragging herself into the the hellish mouth of the house um 
and sees her husband's or, or the stepfather i'm sorry uh still alive and shoots him almost as if he's like a phantom that she's trying to exercise from the house it, it creates this sort of effect where as the film kind of gets into this surreal dream logic where it's not entirely telling you how much of this is in relation to uh, Haji plotting his own fake death in order to get through it or whether this is just a vision that she's experiencing being haunted by his figure or the the violence that she enacted it's it becomes this sort of uh visual uh it, it, it's it's indicative of kind of the the timbre of that climax and kind of like mm-hmm. where it is uh how it is kind of shifting things into the space where you are being dragged through this almost kind of uh hellish existence that the the last moments of this this woman and like the things that are haunting her like as she's in her dying moments yeah it's like i cannot overstate especially if you've just seen the trailer how everything in this movie about watching this movie just becomes more unhinged and surreal the longer it goes on particularly after the dust scene but like obviously like 100 in the in the final act like as those struggles as everybody's uh struggles and particularly lady agnes is like uh fear and paranoia come to a head like all the color grading stuff that changes the camera stops positioning everything at like wes anderson 90 degree angles and starts like panning slowly i'm thinking of the scene right as soon as she gets down to the bath uh in the basement and uh, the handmaid is in the bath and it just like sort of slowly creepily like scoots around the it's terrifying it's absolutely terrifying and you're still hearing uh the stepfather you know his sort of like mirthful laugh and you're watching him he is shot from off screen uh just really like terrifyingly modern filmmaking and it just reaches this really gross horrendous pitch um you know the 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 scenes of the laborers that we were talking about who are outside washing their clothes obviously become a lot more bizarre as they go on um even like there there are two or three i guess endings to this one of which is when the stepfather dies another of which is when the um uh when the brother uh dies and gets thrown down the stairs he gets choked out i guess he's shot and then choked out uh and even that is like for the first time we see an angle of the stairs where it's like pointing down and the vanishing point is like beneath the ground if there was one it would be like in hell and we're just suddenly like thrown this weird camera angle right that has not been seen in the rest of the movie even though you don't realize like oh we didn't see this before nobody is like gradually carefully walking down the steps it's always straight on 90 degrees uh until that final you know the climax and it's just completely throwing you for a loop i love how and those stairs which by the way like those two characters the social climbers are literally only ever seen hanging out yeah. on them and like at different sort of like levels and then at the end one of them throws the other down those stairs right it's like there's so much shakespeare in this movie <laughs> yeah i'd like to point out one of the it's it's a nice little callback because earlier in the film when they're like sort of debating the different methods methodologies that same brother kicks him down the stairs which is it it becomes this sort of uh repeating idea of like the ways in which other people will knock other people down in order Mm -hmm. to themselves climb it's so good um Um, i feel i feel like a dipshit for not getting the whole step i didn't think of that at all you did what i I got a go i did i did look i didn't I didn't. I admit it. Hey, uh, was was it was it a bit of a was it a bit of a was was it a bit of a revelation for you? Did you feel like something broke open for you about this movie? Okay. Um. There's there's one other thing that I wanted to say, and it's coming out of this movie. I felt I feel like 
I feel like I'm back in like a rhetorical analysis class. I'm just doing the most grade school shit, but like the house is a body, right? Upstairs, people are like fearing, worrying. Okay, fuck you for that one, though. All right. Uh, Look, I admit the stairs thing. We're going to do the house as a character. We're going to do To Kill a Mockingbird uh, grade here. In the basement, there's shit, there's guts, (laughs) there's acid. Things are being eaten, dissolved, and killed, and expelled. And in the like foyer and outside are like the laboring hands. Sell it on the top floor, and I'll go along with you. Okay. Uh, Natalie, your hands up. Do you have anything to say? (laughs) Yeah, I did want to uh, circle back to what we were talking about, about the kind of uh, intentional anachronisms that are pointed out by the the last shot revealing uh, the very contemporaneous factories. Um, I feel like that to me is like one of the, the biggest sort of tells into what this movie is all about, just because primarily for the rest of it, um, like we've mentioned, the, the sort of iconography and like props that are within the house feel very antiquated there's everything is by candlelight there are these very sort of like uh primitive phones um the gun is very much like clearly a sort of like old school gotta load the the pellets and then clean it out in the in the muzzle um and for most of the film we don't hear any sort of uh markers of the outside world the primary piece of sound design that we hear for the outside world are these coyote howls that makes it feel like the house is in this kind of like empty barren space and beyond it is just this kind of like forest of some kind that the characters have found themselves lost in and so like breaking that apart at the ending i feel is is extremely intentional because all of this is right outside and we're just not hearing it and from the character's perspective it's as if nothing outside exists and one of the the key things that i feel like is when you do get to that final shot and when it does pan over the skyline the sound design shifts and you start hearing the kind of like hums of the factories and these very like 1970s sounding car horns Mm -hmm. it becomes the rest of the world is bleeding into the film in that moment and the decision to cut it right there with no credits, there's nothing else afterward, is just, it, it's such an intentionally jarring effect. It's essentially meant to be kind of like a wake-up call to you and really hangs with you like the second the film ends as you're trying to then kind of retroactively digest what it means for everything else that's come before. Yeah, I, I'm so glad you mentioned the coyotes because that's such a perfect example of like how this movie is brilliant and also like pretty funny. Like I think that that especially retroactively when you look back and you realize that they were like in the middle of a city, quote unquote, it's like they were piping in Rainforest Cafe coyotes throughout this movie, uh, just like into these people's lives. But like I, that is very funny and a little bit absurd, but also like legitimately like this is a movie about essentially conservative paranoia, right? Like it's about people who are so afraid of the outside world and so afraid of acknowledging like different alternative metrics for identity and success and wealth that they have entrapped themselves in this tomb of the old world of like the old ways of doing things forevermore. And so it's like, it probably would sound like, like there's just nothing but chaos and fear and and hell outside Mm -hmm. the doors. And that's why they entrap themselves into the uh, sort of interior hell in which they've, you know, uh, they bound themselves. And it like, I love how the movie 
literalizes that by never really showing any external shots until the very end. Like that's the first time we get a sense of where this is in space. If it's in a rural area, if it's an urban area, incredibly urban area, as it turns out, HVAC units everywhere. Um, but like, uh, just like the, the, um, how cloistered it feels like, you know what it feels like? It feels like a bottle episode. Thank you. Um, this has. Uh, I, I thought you were going to say Silent Hill, which is a Sil- big thing that I had. No, I tried to play it. Silent Hill once, and I uh, and the copy I had was glitched. Uh, I kept dying and losing at the game, so I decided something's got to be wrong here. I need to return it to Blockbuster. Silent Hill Four, where you're just stuck in that fucking apartment the entire time, except when you creep right. up. Is that the room? To go watch, it is the. Room. It is the room. I mean, it, it is Silent Hill Four, the room. Not that's what I just said. Any other, the other things called the room, uh, which are quite different. Um, hmm. this has a been a, a fun, a fun place. Yeah. You wanna... No, I don't. <laughs> yeah, I mean, no? I could, okay. I could pronounce Diabolique again if you want. Sure. Do it. All right. Here we go. Diabolique. 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 Just in case you didn't get the first two times, uh, that honestly, my tank is dry. I've really, I've pulled out everything that I, that I thought about this movie as we were going. Uh, do we have any, I guess, lingering thoughts? Yeah, I, I just want to point out that the, this is we've been talking about this in a very sort of like uh, I, I love how deep we've been digging into this. But I just want to say this is also just a very entertaining movie. It like is. it is we're we're underselling it in a lot of capacities, but it is very much uh, uh we, we brought up uh, one of my friends, uh, Esther Rosenfield, before, but one of uh, somebody else that I know in, in film circles, uh, Sam Bedrogin, uh brought up the fact that this is essentially a, quote, barn burner gothic thriller, uh, which it, it really feels like it in a lot of ways in terms of the plotting. You It starts out kind of like slow burn until like the the first killing, like half an hour in. And then from there, it feels like it never really slows down and... I, coming out of it the first time, especially, like, the last act, like, left my heart, like, really pounding. I was just, like, I, I could, like, feel just very excited, and uh, it, it was just incredibly thrilling just from a visceral angle, even before you dig into any of the other stuff. Man, yeah, that is such a good point. I mean, like, basically the whole first act of this movie is, like, hey, what if, instead of being, like, a little sissy, Hamlet was, like, a badass wheelchair queer woman who had absolutely no compunction killing claudius while he was praying with like a wild like bespoke weapon that doesn't really make any sense um yeah it it really rocks like it's a really it just like really goes i think um it's also worth noting that like it's very funny a lot of the time especially again in like the first act when it's basically about family members being unbelievably mean to each other and just like saying mm-hmm. and won't like people call each other reptiles people call <laughs> each other like terrible slurs it's just like really really messy drama uh it's also. very catty in, yeah. in, in, in yeah. its like first span um i i, I do want to sing because um the first crowd that I got this with was like basically like deathly silent the entire way through. Ooh. It felt very much like everyone was absorbing it. But the the crowd I got it with yesterday like picked up on some of the humor in a lot of spaces. And uh, one of one of my favorite little touches is uh, right at the end after um, 
the brother uh uh Shadon, uh Shaban, who uh, is the one who's shot and thrown down the stairs has been killed and the other brother uh Ramazan leaves uh the doctor who's been tending to Lady Agnes comes back and like is like supposedly going to check up on this woman who is dead and it's uh her maid is just basically like yelling at him to go away and he just kind of like solemnly turns and walks off <laughs> it's like it is in those moments of the most dire like consequence that it pulls out the funniest shit like the dust scene we're talking about where it does end up with uh with lady agnes and her handmaid uh you know embracing kissing and just really getting it on in the wheelchair and it's just like squeaking around the room just slowly like eek, 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 eek. and it's it's like a little punch downy but very fucking funny in the moment that they chose to like instead of having sort of a romantic or serious or like demure like oh they go off screen no they go in circles in this very opulent room just squeaking around the room. it's very funny or and then the the very next scene after that which like it's sort of a blink and you miss it thing so i didn't know if i actually interpreted it correctly but then by the end it turned out to be true where like the servant uh goes and gets the band that was requested by um our our main character but then they had it turns out that the servant is like trying to drive her lady insane. And so she's like, there's, there's this moment where, where she's just standing beneath the, the window that the, the band is playing. And she just sort of like does like a, like a wink thing. She's like, go ahead. And then they're like, yeah, we saw, we saw your stepdad in the, in the market. And she's like, what? And it's like very funny that like, she's like basically doing like pantomime to like, make her plot happen yeah there's a lot of really good stuff happening but also you know i mean it it's it's still called chess of the wind it's still about like you know i mean i i kind of i don't want to do the like my version of the eighth grade thing but like i really love how like throughout this movie there is a literal chess match and it's between the the stepfather and stepdaughter and who wins that chess match at the end well the wind does baby because like that all of those pieces get scattered, you know, it's like you think that you think that you're playing the game, but like the wind is going to blow the way that it needs to blow. I I have my own interpretation, like double interpretation of that, but now it becomes a triple one with that in mind uh, where it, it is. <laughs> thank you, Jason. Uh, it is very much. Uh, it, it is representative of the, the sort of on its most literal, the sort of uh, struggle b- for control between uh, Hajiamu and Lady Agnes. But then it becomes this sort of uh, plot movement where uh, at a certain point, uh, Lady Agnes is looking at the board as like, who moved it? And the idea being like, could it have been his ghost or him if he's still alive and just kind of like sneakily changing things around in order to manipulate her? Or could it be somebody else who's doing that to make her believe that she's going insane? Um, and in its own way, just symbolically, like what chess represents is that it is a game between two players, uh, vying for control of the other. It is it who wins out over it. It's its own sort of strategizing and, uh, these kinds of gambits that are at the center of the movie and drive all these conflicts between the characters. And I also want to point out that the wind itself, the the chess of the wind is like, like you're saying, it's the winds of change, but it could also be its own sort of like literal, like ghost story being like the, it's a, it's a force of the wind, a, a phantom who isn't there sort of thing. <laughs> 
Well, and then you introduce the socio-political lens and the, the metaphor becomes even more dense, right? Because like chess is also like a wildly political game. It always has been. It, literally, there are pawns that you take to the other side of the map and then you can promote them to kings and queens and stuff. So it's like, this is a, this is a movie that is so concerned with the pieces. Like literally, we keep checking in on the pawns outside. And then lo and behold, one of the pawns is actually like, instrumental in the scheme that is the final undoing of our main character so like on top of everything else it's like remember that like when you're playing chess you're playing a game with like with pieces that have agendas of their own right in in this case when you're playing a game uh it's probably not chess if you're on this podcast uh it's probably a game that we have to intro uh, after a second i have to thank everybody this was really fucking great discussion uh but we do have to intro the final segment of our show uh which is a game that uh, I, I won't say we need to harry needs to lead us in yes uh it's the final segment of our show the segment that we like to call <gasps> Cody's Cody, wow thank you for that that introduction that that introduction i gotta say it was to die for um so what we're gonna do today yeah i don't know glassbreak.mp3 um nope all right i'm gonna move on uh today we're gonna uh, do a little something i like to call trilibs and for those listening or participating actively here who are on a on a rather unaware trilibs is our attempt at recreating the world famous the world infamous game mad libs where you take a story that has some blanks you got to fill in with various parts of speech um the people uh filling in those blanks don't necessarily know what story is being told and so the result is something uh, zany perhaps a little off kilter um and what i've done today is i've put together a little story inspired somewhat by the film we just finished talking about and so what i'm going to do is a round table uh each of y'all just kind of going in a a loop in the order of jason natalie aaron harry i'll ask each of y'all for uh a part of speech and you know what we're just we're just going to try the best we can because that's all any of us can ever ask for and by the end of it we'll hopefully have something fun worth sharing with uh with the rest of the world so no pressure um with that starting with Jason Jason I'm going to need from you a name uh, uh specifically specifically a last name a surname Apologies. uh Brian is all I had um uh <laughs> that could be a surname uh kendrick interesting okay kendrick brian kendrick is the, the full Listen, name you only ask for the last one you only get home. the last one if you want to license the first name that's an extra 24.99 oh why don't you use a gun all right well okay no tough but fair um all right excellent my vamping worked out uh i, I actually only had to replace that in one spot um pulling back the curtain um anyways natalie you're up next from you could i please get a noun <sighs> earn very very apt thank you for that uh aaron from you could i please get a number uh zero saucy uh excellent and harry from you could i please get a type of currency um and then if you would just like to after that verbalize what the currency is that would be uh-huh. cool yeah uh, i'm gonna go with real what can i get that one more time the real where is that don't remember 
but it is a currency. You can look it up. All uh, right. Aaron, it looks like he's typing away. Can we get the Brazilian? Brazilian. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. All right. I will. Again, I'll do my best because that's what any of me can ever hope to do. Uh, Jason, from you, could I please get a, a type of relative? Uh, second cousin thrice removed. Second cousin thrice that, If I remember correctly, means it is the cousin of your cousin, and it would mean three generations above. So like my great-grandparents, and then over that way, I think. Why do you know okay. so much about this, Jason? Uh, just research. Video games. Yeah. I played an incest video game once. It was called Metal Glasses Gear Glasses Break.mp3. Um, my relationship with Jason has just been broken open. I feel like I, I understand so much more about him. Um, Natalie, over to sidestepping that. Natalie, from you, could I please get uh, a name? Um, and I'll leave that open to your interpretation as to what that means. First name, last name, both, whatever you like. Frank. Excellent. Control F, replace. Spoilers, that's going to play a big role in this story. Um, all right, excellent. Uh, Aaron, uh, now this one, um, I want you to, to think pretty carefully about this one. From, f- for, you, uh, for you, from you, rather, I need the name of one of the Grossman siblings. Uh, yeah, I don't think my... <laughs> I don't think my older brother Alex has ever been shouted out. I mean, he doesn't deserve a shout out, but I don't think he's ever been listed as an answer uh, on this. So, no, he's cool. Uh, so, I guess Alex, you can add in Alex. the last name if you want. Uh, you know what? I will leave that up to my interpretation. Um, I think Alex sure. should, should just hey, be fine for this. Does anybody ever um, call him Alex G? Because that'd be pretty funny. Why? Never mind. Glasses break. MP3. Uh, Jason, uh, not Jason. Excuse me, Harry. Um, keeping track of orders is hard. Harry, from you, could I please get an adjective? Oh wow. Uh, let's see. Languid. I know. Remarkably straightforward this time. I, I said languid. I, I, languid. I went ahead and made it not straightforward for you. No, hey, no, that's fine. Um, more straightforward than real. Um, so I, I will take languid, uh, do, 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 do. All right. Do, do the Brazilians Jason. do the Italian hand pinch? <laughs> okay. They do actually. <laughs> oh, mama mia. Jason, <laughs> we are going to get in trouble with a number of different, uh, li- listen, Transylvania already came for our asses. Don't let's not get the Brazilians <laughs> mad at us. Uh, or the Italians are, I'm sure already upset. Um, Jason, don't get upset with me when I ask you for a noun. Uh, the Greeks don't have enough money to be upset with anybody. They could just, you could just buy their houses out from underneath them. Um, a noun, huh? Um, <laughs> gear shift. A noun, huh? Uh, brilliant. Uh, <laughs> all right, gear shift. Uh, I've locked that in. Uh, Natalie, from you, could I please get a type of surface? This is the most obtuse thing I've ever heard you ask for. <laughs> no, I don't it either. But listen, we're just gonna we're gonna try our best. It's all any of us can ever ask for, right? Hmm. There are no wrong answers. Then why would why would you ask a specific question if there are no wrong answers? I mean, there are wrong answers, but there are no wrong answers. <laughs> let's let's go with 
sand. You know what? Sand? Pretty good surface. I think I'll get roasted in the comments for that, but I think sand is a pretty solid surface. I mean, not literally. Not, but, yeah, sand's you know. great. Uh, and speaking of great, we've got Aaron here. Shout outs to yeah. Aaron. Aaron, from you, you. Uh, I need a, yeah, yeah, a, yeah, okay, all right. Don't pat yourself in the back too much, big guy. Uh, Aaron, from you, could I please get a type of container? Type of container? Yeah. Um, Think hard, long and hard about where I might have gotten that <laughs> from in the movie we just watched. Uh, a uh, one of one of the rectangle uh, pyrexes. A rectangle pyrex. Pretty good. Uh, He's one of my favorites. I already, uh, again, spoilers. I already locked in one of the re- rectangle pyrexes. So assuming okay. I can make that That's funnier than I trust. I'm gonna. Yeah. Uh, hey, <laughs> we'll see. Um, Harry, from you, could I please get a type of chemical? And then if you would want to say that out loud, that would also be cool. Okay. It never sure. misses. Um, let's go with chlorine. Hubba hubba, chlorine. All righty. We are moving right along. Uh, Jason, from you, could I please get a unit of time? Uh, give me a second. Um... You got it. <laughs> I got it. Good one, Jason. Oh God, I'm gonna be reeling. Uh, no, it's really due to that um, for the for the next for the next few seconds. Anyway, uh, all right, Natalie, an adjective, if you would please. Lugubriously or lugubrious. Sorry, nice. No, that's, I uh, gave you the adverb when I meant the adjective. <laughs> You're yeah. always no, it's, it's okay. yourself. You're always overachieving. Is the thing. <laughs> Lugubrious. Wow. Um, Shrozzy, how it's been many years since I took the SAT, um, but I'll try my best. Uh, Aaron, from you, could I please get an exclamation? Uh, uh, shit! Said in that, said in that manner. <laughs> that exact volume. Oh, that, I was, I was going to read it in the other manner. I need it. Okay, I think I can go with that one. Thank All right. You. Well, yeah, I'll, 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 I'll try. Um, I'll try not to shit the bed on that one. Harry, from you, could I please get a type of relative? What did Jason say? I'm going to go with a uh, like great half aunt six times removed. Great Stop making fun. aunt. This isn't a podcast six. where we do that. Uh, glasses break. MP3. All right, Jason, back to you. And Jason, I'm going to need you to think carefully about this. Uh, I need the name of another Grossman sibling. Hmm. Go with the secret fourth Grossman. I feel like my family has been targeted here. For it's not for any particular reason. Um, yeah. I just know. Uh, I'll go for uh, Alexander. I already did, Alex. Oh shit! Another gross one. Two options. You know both of them. You had a sixty-six percent shot, and he missed it. I'll go with sixty-seven. Aaron, you Aaron you have the per- perfect example of the Monty Hall problem set up <laughs> here on this podcast. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm going with Aaron. Double A. Monty Hall, uh, another Grossman sibling. Fun fact. Uh, that's Ooh. number three. Um, no, shout, uh, no Nick slander on this episode. Shout outs to Nick. Um, Natalie, an adjective, please. Sultry. Sultry. Lugubrious Excellent. and sultry. Introduce and me to that person. Also, another adjective. Yeah. Um, 
uh, I think I already said Haba Haba Auga, but I'll say Haba <laughs> Haba Auga again um, because anytime is a great time to say it. And uh, anytime is a great time for me to say we're getting close to the end. So hang in there, everyone. Uh, Aaron, a, a type of room, if you would please. Uh, bathroom. Oh, man. Shit and then bathroom. I, yep. I think Aaron's going to have to make a certain movement once we're oh, done recording. Oh, Aaron. Everybody. Uh, moving right along. Harry, a type of emotion, if you would please. Oh, wow. Where do I start? Um, <laughs> As it let's go. <laughs> let's keep the one-liners coming. What else we got? I'm going to go Nothing? with... Let's- All right. Let's go with um, anxious. Retweet. Um, all right. Jason, from you, I need a type of weapon. <laughs> Ooh. Ooh. We'll go with a scythe. Ooh. A scythe. All right. And... Last one, unless I miss something along the way, in which case we'll hilariously try to ad lib it in the moment. But I believe we've got the last one here. It goes to Natalie. And Natalie, from you, I need the name of a movie. Let's let's think big here. Uh, let's go <laughs> The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. Oh, Hell you're going to make yes. me type a lot. But that's a good one. The, the Assassination of Jesse James by the coward... Bobby F. Robert Ford? Bobby F. Robert. By the coward Robbie, Bobby F. Jr. Are there a lot Robbie of movies type. that have the opinion of the filmmaker in the title of the movie? I've always <laughs> been really stunned by that. It's like, they called him a coward right in the, the fucking title of that thing. I mean, have you seen the movies? He's kind of he's, He is kind of a coward. He's I mean, pretty fair. cowardly. He's pretty cowardly. While his back was turned. If you think about you it. Know? Think about it. Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade is really an opinion of the filmmaker because it was not the Last Crusade. It was, it was almost penultimate. The second really. to last crusade. Almost. Uh, a lot to consider. While we mull that over, I'll just go ahead and, and read through this. We've got here uh, the finished product. Uh, hopefully it, it lives up to the expectations of those of us here and those who may be listening. If if they're out there, shout outs to you if you watch, if you A, watch Chess of the Wind and B, tuned into this podcast. Um, I look forward to hearing from all three of you. But uh, without further ado, this is Trilibs um, and in a bit of a pivot for us because I, I realize Again, we've we've talked about how this movie is so much like Diabolique, and on our Diabolique episode, I, we also did Trilibs, and it ended up being a lot like this one so um, cool in, in form and function. Uh, uh, Je Um So this is Trilibs colon Spooky Crime Part 2. We've got a sequel here. <clears throat> Once upon a time, the matriarch of the wealthy Kendrick family died suddenly via urn. No further explanation necessary. As a result, the entire estate, with approximately zero real, was to be inherited <laughs> by the eldest, second cousin thrice removed, Frank. With so much at stake, 
With so much at stake, Frank began to fear for their life. They suspected that the family patriarch, Alex, was plotting to steal that fortune for themselves. In a languid move, Frank snuck into Alex's room late one night and killed them through blunt force from a gear shift. Alex was dead before they hit the sand. Uh, Frank did their best to hide the body inside of one of those rectangle Pyrexes, and they (laughs) then proceeded to drown uh, the body in chlorine. They waited and waited, and after a few seconds, they went back to check the, uh, check their progress, only to find that the body was no longer there. Through su- uh, throughout subsequent evenings, Frank heard lugubrious cries of "shit" uh, throughout the family <laughs> house. Frank consulted with their great half aunt, six times removed, Aaron, who reassured them that there was nothing to worry about. One evening, Frank heard a cry even more sultry than the rest, and so they went to investigate. They made their way to the bathroom and opened the door to find Alex and Aaron shocked and anxious. Frank pointed a scythe at them and made them promise to stop their scheming. They agreed! In return, Frank promised to fund their family movie nights. They settled into a viewing of the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford, the first of many viewings together as a newly unified family. The end. Oh god, I'm starting to realize wow. a theme Close. and it's and it's that anybody who doesn't die ends up just watching a movie. <laughs> right. Boy, you're just picking up you're, on that. You're just picking up on that theme. <laughs> if the episodes we've been doing this year. Is... Yeah. Almost uh, like this is sort of some sort of movie podcast. <laughs> what? Is is that is that a many many subsequent viewings is that of just family, you know, films watching as a family in general or specifically the assassination of Jesse James, but because that is a fucked up film to watch just over and over again with your family. Three hours and 20 minutes. Reading between the lines, it is canonically the Grossman family watching the like 185 minute assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. I mean, it looks, it's a beautiful film. So, yeah, it is. We're we're cinema fans. Too damn long. Too damn long. I'll say it. I'll put my, my flag in the ground. Uh, but I will, uh, I will not say that this podcast has gone on too long. We're running at a tight 83 minutes, uh, and all 83 of them have been a joy. Thank you so much, Natalie, for joining us for another wonderful episode. We hope it doesn't take another 20 episodes before you're able to join again, but let us know. Uh, and remind everybody who's listening where they can find you. Yeah, so uh, primarily uh, pretty much all of my stuff is uh, collected via my Twitter account of v- dubious professional quality uh at uh natalie's not in it uh but uh very very regularly it seems like things are very much picking up now uh you can find my work at a number of sites uh pace little white lies uh some other ones that i cannot mention as of right now through the vow of secrecy um but i will be having a lot of content about uh primarily film and music but potentially some some other things uh on the way so yeah stay tuned to twitter i love last time i did a freelance piece they did give me a piece of paper that said vow of secrecy it actually asked for my complete and total silence about any of the work that i was doing uh it felt really wrong at the time but it was the right choice um thank you again natalie for being on thank you listener for being for listening to this i'm not exactly sure when this film is going to be watchable by you uh rumblings that it's probably going to hit the criterion channel at some point because of janus films right uh, yes, it is also um, going to be part of the latest World Cinema box set that I believe comes out September through Criterion Collection. Oh, nice. Um, so nice. it will be available for home viewing uh, before long. Is it is it wrong that my hackles are immediately raised uh, about 
then my hackles are immediately raised to be like, this deserves its own box. Why is it in a box set of things? Like, I I would not be surprised based on the restoration process of the amount of uh, uh, kind of coverage this has been getting since the restoration was announced if they don't end up putting it in its own thing uh, later on. Because I believe that that has already happened. I believe that happened with Black Girl in the mm-hmm. collection, which I think was part of the, the first World Cinema box set, if I remember correctly. And then it got its own standalone. Yeah. You got to start as one of Marty's picks and you got to come out in the Marty's pick box set. And then if there's enough acclaim, you can break out and be disassociated from that lovely Italian-American director. <laughs> you know what? You know what? Uh, none of those other movies have had. They haven't had their own dedicated episode of Try Love. Um, but hey, if you want to listen to more of them, there's a whole feed of wow. them. Uh, we cover movies that are at the Trilon, uh, of which there are many playing right now, including the Nick Cage series. We'll be republishing some older episodes, but uh, you should check out for the next couple of weeks just because we're busy. But you should check out the Trilon's website at trilon.org and uh, catch some of the rest of them. There are still like seven or eight left, I think, um, to the whole series. Uh, all going to be a rollicking good time, and you'll get to hear from us on a few of them as well. Uh, for right now, my name is Jason. Uh, this is Trilove. You can find us on Twitter at Trilove Podcast. You can find the Triline at Triline Cinema and at Triline.org. Me, little old me, you can find me, little old me, at Nintendoofus on Twitter. Uh, Jason is lying. He is normal sized. Mm-hmm. Um, thank you so much for being here, Natalie. Um, and shout out to Marty's Pickies. Uh, Marty's Pickies. I've been Cody Narvison. You can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. Yeah, thanks so much, Natalie. Uh, read Natalie's stuff. It's awesome. Also, uh, she said her Twitter is of dubious professional quality, but I would like to note that she goes viral with more regularity than anyone else I know. So a, a solid Twitter follow uh, for that That's reason. True. Uh, you can find me on Twitter not going viral with any sort of regularity at Shiitake Harry. You can find me on Twitter at RBPlease. And hey, that what's was your name, Aaron dog? Grossman. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah, it has subsumed him. He has become what he is not. I've, I've become my social media account at this point, so... Lawnmower yeah. man. Yeah. Competition in increasing worldly gains diverts you until you visit the graveyards and visit the graves. No, indeed, but soon you shall know Yes, you shall know.